Brene Brown, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. You are the author of five number one New York Times bestsellers, including Dare to Lead, Daring Greatly, Rising Strong. You're the co-editor with Tarana Burke of You Are Your Best Thing, the host of two podcasts, and I'm only doing one right now, so two podcasts, that's a lot, Unlocking Us and Dare to Lead. There's a documentary, The Call to Courage on Netflix that plenty of people have seen, but this is the thing that gets me, your 2010 TED Talk. The Power of Vulnerability, the one that launched you into the world. It is one of the top five most viewed TED Talks in the world. I don't even know what that number looks like. <laughs> I don't either. It's crazy. So there's all of that background, but you're here joining us to talk about Atlas of the Heart, Mapping Meaningful Connection and the Language of Human Experience, which is your new book. It's out yeah. today, November 30th. Yes. Very excited. The format is a little different, though. It's yeah. very cool. Can we talk about the format of your book? And then we're going to go into the language part, but let's talk about the format first. Great. What do you think? I think it's fab. I think people are going to be really excited about the art. And there's lots of quote art that looks very Instagrammable, I will say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it was interesting. I always thought that the book would have three sections, kind of an, an introduction, my story, how I came to be an emotions researcher, why I think language is important. And then the middle section, which is the exploration of 87 emotions and human experiences. And then the last section was always a little iffy, to be honest with you, because I wasn't sure I was going to be able to untangle this framework that I've been working on for 20 years. You know, I, I wasn't sure. And so I went into writing the book and the publishers, you know, Penguin Random House were like, let's go in thinking there's going to be two sections and maybe a conclusion as the third. And then because this concept emerged from the research, I was able to complete the framework. And so that's the last piece. It's definitely different. I've never done a four colored book before. That's crazy and dangerous. I'll be totally honest with you mm -hmm. because one of our guiding principles in our organization, which is Brene Brown Education and Research Group, is beauty and excellence in all things. And so I was like, writer's block, no problem. I'm going to pick color palettes. I'm going to look at photos. And so I can get, uh, it was like a procrastinator's nightmare. Finally, they just said, you're not allowed to do anything until the book's turned in. <laughs> they, they, held, they held all the fun graphic stuff hostage. Okay, but I want to come back to this language piece, as you describe it in the book, a portal to meaning, connection, healing, learning, and self-awareness. Language can shape what we're feeling. Isn't that crazy? Uh-huh. It's so true, though. So you start with the language, and let's look at the word atlas. Yeah. I mean, atlas, map, layers, collection, a collection. Uh, yeah, a collection of maps. I mean, as anyone who's ever read anything I've written, maybe even a sentence, I'm crazy for a metaphor. Yeah. And then I bulldog it. I will never let it go. Almost to the point where it's like, that's another bad procrastination tool. I'm like collecting vintage maps. I'm spending a lot of time with cartographers, you know, and everyone's like, oh God, she's in her process, but what's real and what's bullshit? We don't know. I've used the map metaphor, I think in probably three or four books. And I always say, look, I'm a map maker and a traveler. So I have this data and this research. So I've collected from all of us. And I put together a map based on the data and I'm following it like you, tripping, falling, stumbling, trying to figure it out, trying to practice vulnerability when I hate vulnerability, trying to let go of comparison when I can be a comparaholic. But on this one, I was thinking, boy, each of these groups, emotions and experiences, it's their own map. It's like, there's a collection of maps in here. And I got to tell you, you're going to have to be your own map maker because I don't know where you are, where you've been, where you're going. 
we're going to have to learn to be cartographers in our own lives. And that's a different approach, I think, than what I've done in other books. And you mentioned in the book, too, that you were thinking about putting all of the emotions and experiences into alphabetical order. And then you had a couple of interns say, hey, wait a minute, that's not the best way to do this. It's a great story. Would you tell that story to listeners, please? Yeah. So we had two interns, Ellen and Prana, both from University of Texas at Austin. And at the time, we were looking at the efficacy of using television and movie clips to teach emotion and to help people recognize it. And it was a summer internship. I said, you know, I think we're just going to list these 87 emotions and experiences alphabetically. And they're like, that's a huge mistake, which is interesting thing for interns to say. And I was like, say more. And they said, the ones that we learned the best and the ones that resonated the deepest for us, the learning was when you use comparison. So you didn't teach us what envy was when you got to the ease. You taught us what envy was by comparing it to jealousy, because that's where we make the human mistake around language. So it was great. And that's what we ended up doing. And then we had these clusters and we were like, oh my God, how are we going to name these things? You know, what are they? That took three weeks. The names are awesome. Oh, thank you. So to give people an idea of what's in the book, because it is just out today, the first section is called Places We Go When Things Are Uncertain or Too Much. And this is where you touch on stress, overwhelm, anxiety, worry, avoidance, excitement, dread, fear, and vulnerability. Yeah. Let's stick with vulnerability for a second, because everyone knows that's your absolute area of expertise. But you build essentially a conversation about these key terms, and overwhelm is how it appears in the subhead. How did all of that come together? I think it was a lot of weaving and a lot of post-it notes, so many post-it notes. And then also as a social scientist, I'm trained in factor analysis, which is how you build instrument, like testing instruments. And one of the things that's really interesting is when you're building an instrument, you have, let's say, 100 questions. And what you do is you run a statistical analysis to see what concepts or constructs the questions hang on to. So you'll see five or seven hang on to this idea and five or seven. And so really I was trying to use the concept of a factor analysis to figure out where does it make sense for these experiences and emotions to live? Places we go when things are uncertain or too much. And then ones you read, places we go when things don't go as planned. Mm -hmm. Disappointment, expectations, regret, discouragement, resignation, boredom, frustration. This is interesting. Chapter four, places we go when it's beyond us. I'm looking at awe and wonder and curiosity and confusion and surprise. All of those things have a tendency to be right outside of our awareness. And I had a lot of help. And, you know, Ben Greenberg's my editor at Penguin Random House. And, you know, you're in trouble with the publisher when they say, we're flying your editor to Houston. He'll be coming back with the manuscript. Luckily for Ben, he has a real problem for tacos. And so he didn't mind coming to Texas because I just feed him tacos like three meals a day. And so we spent a lot of time together looking at those. It was fun, but it was different. And I will say, one of the reasons I say emotions and experiences is because there's a lot of uh, conflict and argument and debate within the academic community about what constitutes an emotion. Are there seven? Are there 25? Are there 45? And it's just to be honest with you, kind of an academic pissing match that I'm not interested in participating in. So I figured if I say emotions and experiences, I've kind of covered myself. I mean, 87 is a big number. We didn't start with that number. Do you want to hear about how we got to I would love to to hear about that. Yeah. It's such a research nerd conversation. So several years ago, I co-taught a class. So Bieberg in collaboration with Oprah 
we did some online learning courses. And one of them had a very heavy component around emotions and languaging and speaking emotion. And oh my God, I don't even know, 70,000 people took it. So we ended up with data from the comment section, from questions that we received because we had kind of Q&As all the time. So we de-identified all of that data, no names, nothing attached to it, and analyzed it, asking the question, what emotion or experience do people have a hard time naming? And when they name it, it helps them move through it, heal it, and move forward. So we ended up with a big list, maybe a hundred, I don't remember how many, hundred, some over a hundred. Then we brought together a focus group of therapists. These folks were serious analysis to community organizers. I mean, just therapists who worked across a broad range of folks. And we put up all of the ones that emerged from the first data collection. And then we gave them garage sale stickers, a green, a yellow, and a red, the little dots, you know, on garage Mm -hmm. sales. And we gave them hours and they were to walk around the room answering the same question. Being able to name this is important in regulating it and healing and and moving through it. And then we ended up with this list. And then I added some. So for example, schadenfreude, which is like a cultural phenomenon right now. Like people love some schadenfreude, right? What do you think? You've got your finger on the pulse. Why do you think we're so into schadenfreude right now? Oh, I'm not sure I should say it on the podcast because it might involve swearing. Do it. <laughs> I've already, I've already, we've already burnt those ships. So well, there's that. But you know, you're the author, so I, I'm <laughs> much better with you swearing. I do think ultimately it is about finding comfort, and that if you can't find comfort in your own way, you're going to look to someone else feeling not so great. And I love the phrase that you found instead of Schadenfreude. Freuden. Freuda? Am I saying oh, that? Oh, no, right? no, wait. Oh, yeah. So, my betting ahead. No, that was the example. So, Schadenfreude was mm-hmm. part of something we need to understand. Right. And I think the therapist thought it was really important. And I understand why, because it's such a variable and disruptive connection. Mm-hmm. When I take pleasure in your pain, when you fail and I feel joy, that's what Schadenfreude is, right? Mm-hmm. But Freudenfreude was not on the list. I'd never heard of it, but I thought it was really helpful to include for a comparison, you know, that when we feel joy, when you call me and I'm like, hey, what's up? And you're like, oh my God, this wonderful thing happened. And I feel joy with you for that. That is so connection building. And we're so desperate for that in our relationships. So I thought that was an important ad. So every now and then I came across something where I thought, we should include this because it'll help give context to what this other one means. There are a couple of other things or more than a couple of other things that I learned from this book as well. You talk about how confusion actually is vital to learning, that we need to be confused at certain points in our lives so we can learn. And also that hope is something you learn, that it's not a factory preset in human beings, that you actually have to learn how to hope, how to be hopeful. And both of those things, I sort of sat there and stared at the page for a while because (laughs) they seem really simple now that I've heard it out in the world from someone else. But at the same time, those are really big ideas. They are big ideas. So I'm going to flip in the book Mm because I want to find, there's this great quote under confusion that I thought was so... I love the illustrations in the book. I have to say that I told them, I was like, I'm going to have to have a four-colored book from now on. They're like, no, this was a one time. But there was, from researchers, the zone of optimal confusion. 
Mm-hmm. I loved that. I thought it'd be a great punk rock band name. That was my whole thing on it. But I think it's like the research that we see that if learning's comfortable, you're probably not learning very much. So there is some level of confusion that's really an important ingredient in learning. And that was, to me, interesting because if you move out of the zone of optimal confusion into it's too confusing, that's where we can go into anything from frustration and anger to boredom. Like I would get bored very quickly if you put a calculus problem in front of me. I wouldn't even get frustrated because I'm not even going to attempt it. I'd just be like, oh God, where's my phone? I need to scroll through Insta or something. And then the hope thing for me, it's been very life-changing in some ways because I had a pretty tough upbringing. And I write about that probably more openly than I do in other books. Emotion in general was seen as weakness in my family. And we got shit done. We were tough. We were fighters. And so as I've tried to recalibrate kind of who I'm going to be as an adult, how I'm going to raise my family and my kids, one thing that I did learn is I was raised with extremely high levels of hopefulness because hopefulness involves three things. It's the ability to set a goal, it's pathway, and pathway is really important because pathway is you can figure out how to get to that goal. And if it doesn't work, the path is blocked or takes you in the wrong direction. You have the capacity to plan B it. And then the last thing is agency. You believe in your ability to set the goal and the pathway. And so for me, I would say, I really want a tree house. And my parents would say, great, you better earn some money and figure out how you're going to get the lumber and then figure out how you're going to construct it in a way that's safe. And you know, it wasn't like, oh, okay, let me call the treehouse company. And then in three weeks, I had a treehouse, you know, with a stained glass window. It was like, you better learn stained glass if that's what you want in there. And, and they would be helpful, but it never dawned on me that I couldn't do something. And it never dawned on me that it ever went as planned. So hopefully we've taught our kids hope without the other stuff. <laughs> be Just get shut down, don't feel anything. But I do think it helped me realize that my inclination to overprotect, especially my kids, to jump on my bike with a forgotten lunch in my basket and ride up there like the Wicked Witch of the West and Wizard of Oz, you know, hair blowing back, rolling 100 miles an hour. First time, yeah. Second time, we better learn a place to put your lunch before you leave because I'm not going to take it to you every day. That's hard. It is hard. It is hard. But you focus a lot on what people are capable of learning in this Mm. book and the fact that we can actually teach ourselves new responses, new emotional responses. And it's rare, I think, that people are open. I mean, change can be scary, right? Yes, always. We've all been living through the wildest period of most of our lives in the last couple of years. And it's been very strange and very uncomfortable and very sad. And we're still dealing with, you know, the grief and the change and everything else. For sure. But the idea that you can learn hope Mm -hmm. and that hope comes out of a difficult moment, Mm -hmm. whether it's just you personally or a larger social moment, that I find deeply encouraging. I'm with you. I have to hold on to that because I do think hope is teachable. And I do think hope is a function of struggle. And hope is related to another concept that you bring up in a chapter that you call places we go when things aren't what they seem. And nostalgia is the word I'm thinking of. (laughs) Nostalgia. And I'm going to quote you for a second. We define nostalgia as a yearning for the way things used to be and are often idealized and self-protective version of the past. 
Nostalgia seems to be getting a lot of us tripped up right now. A lot of us are clinging to ideas of what the world is supposed to be like and what it was like and who was meant to do what, where, and when. And we're getting stuck. We're really, really stuck. And that happens when the world is scary and big. and mm, Oh, for sure. Uncontrollable. But how do we let nostalgia have its place without giving it, pardon the bad metaphor, the keys to the car? Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I learned a lot about nostalgia doing this research and I went in knowing a lot. I wanted to find it just for folks listening. So I do a little history here. There's a Vancouver-based journalist, Adrienne Matai, that wrote this article. It's quoted kind of kind of everywhere where people write about nostalgia, about how dangerous nostalgia was, especially for military folks who were in far-flung places, so much so that playing this was this was a study you know a study down on Swiss mercenaries playing any kind of old Swiss milking songs mm-hmm. that reminded the soldiers of home was punishable by death that you absolutely could not play any kind of music like that and so i knew this kind of dark history of nostalgia and it was also pathologized until recent history so I kind of went into this thinking, God, nostalgia is so dangerous. I, I also, just to be really honest, have seen how it's been leveraged politically in the last administration, you know, the whole make America great again. And it's such a dog whistle, I think, for things like white supremacy, for a patriarchy. And so I went in thinking, God, nostalgia is really dangerous. It's, hey, let's go back to the way things used to be, wink, when people knew their places. But then at the same time, there is a scene from the film Ratatouille, which I love, where this just terrible Machiavellian food critic comes in and he's just drawn like kind of Ichabod Crane, just long and, and almost spider-like. And he's sitting there and Ratatouille, our, you know, our hero in the film, makes Ratatouille as the dish to serve as this food critic. And Ratatouille is like a peasant dish, right? So they take it out to him and, you know, he just is disgusted by the fact that this is what they're serving him. And he takes a spoonful of it. And all of a sudden he's five or six and he's standing at the kitchen door and it looks like he's fallen off his bike and his mom wipes his tears and sits him down at the table in their family home and serves him a big bowl of ratatouille. And he starts him, but he's crying and, and just inhaling. And I think there are moments for me like that. Like I'm very sensitive to perfume and scents. Like, I, like we have a no perfume policy at work. But I came across a smell that reminded me of this amazing experience I had when I was hitchhiking across Europe, actually, as a 17-year-old, which was not, not advisable. So I thought, but I love those moments of nostalgia and memory and feeling for something. And then what happened as I dug into the research, what I found is that Nostalgia can be a really beautiful, important thing. But when we start to, and this is the key word right here, ruminate on it, when it becomes a vessel for anger, when it becomes just rumination makes it, can I read something to you from the book? Totally, please. Yeah. So I write, across the research, nostalgia emerged as a double-edged sword, a tool for both connection and disconnection. It can be an imaginary refuge from a world we don't understand and a dog whistle used to resist important growth in families, organizations, and the broader culture and to protect power, including white supremacy. But Sandra Garrido, who is just an incredible researcher, can I read this part? 
Mm-hmm. Please. Carrito presents evidence that nostalgia can be both part of both a healthy and unhealthy coping strategy, depending on an individual's personality and coping style. In her study, she found that individuals who are prone to depression or rumination, nostalgia tends to be associated with negative emotional outcomes. So for me, the level of divisiveness, uncertainty, and anxiety in the world today leads a lot of us to struggle with the rumination, which Garrido explains as an involuntary focus on negative and pessimistic thoughts. She also differentiates rumination from reflection. Reflection is highly adaptive and psychologically healthy, but there's no doubt in my mind And this gets into Stephanie Coons' work, who I also quote, and I used to require her book in my early MSW teaching 20 years ago. She has a book called The Way We Never Were. I've read it. You know? Oh, yeah. It's (laughs) just, you know, and it's like, so in that lovely Leave It to Beaver, always white in terms of representation, home in the 50s, what did we not understand? Addiction, just, you know, way worse. Domestic violence, higher rates. And who was watching the black housekeeper's kids. We just don't unravel. And so to me, it can be a yearning for the way things used to be. And it can often be idealized and self-protected. I ended up going with my own definition, which maybe has more of a cautionary bent to it than some of the researchers, but I do think it's dangerous. It can be very quickly. You talk about practicing story stewardship, which I'd really like to talk to you about right now, because I feel like that's a piece that you can use to counter the rumination that goes along with nostalgia. If you're really actively listening to another person and not centering yourself in their story. That's right. You have a better shot of opening your mind and opening your heart and being part of something that's a little bigger than yourself. Yeah. So you're in the last, the last section mm-hmm. of the book, which is this theory that I've been working on since my dissertation, which I just had a missing piece to, which is an interesting story in itself. But what I found as we were digging into this research is that meaningful connection, there are three main properties, grounded confidence, the courage to walk alongside other people and practicing story stewardship. And I think, you know, meaningful connection, a lot of the questions I'm getting early right now with the book coming out is why is grounded confidence a component of meaningful connection? And I think it's because it's the first property in the framework in the back. I think it's because in order to really be connected to ourselves, which is a prerequisite for being connected to others, that was a big new piece of this for me. You know, our connection with other people can never be deeper, broader, wider than our connection with ourselves. I think the main quality of grounded confidence is being a learner, not a knower. And so Then you've got practicing the courage to walk alongside, which is really difficult because that means to be other-centered versus self-centered. And yeah, I tell you, like I'm an emotions researcher. I've studied connection for 20-something years. I can still go into a lot of situations self-centered. Like other-centered is not a default. The default is self-protection. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay. I just, I had a moment there because you've been doing this longer than any of us. No, yeah, I have to consciously, intentionally choose Mm -hmm. to be other focused, not my husband's telling me a hard thing that's going on at work. How do I stay out of the fear of how's this going to impact us, our family? You know, like, how do I stay with him and other focused? And that leads to what you said, practicing story stewardship. And that means how do we become great stewards of not only our stories, but the stories that we have the privilege of hearing from other people? And that came down to a real binary which is, I ask you a question. I see something's going on. 
I say to you, hey, Miwai, what's going on? Are you doing all right? And you explain a situation to me that you have just experienced. And then here's where the road splays. Narrative trust or narrative takeover? Do I listen in a way where I'm building narrative trust with you? Your story is safe with me. I believe you. I'm not trying to invalidate, diminish, question, oh, was it really that bad? You don't think you're just being sensitive? I'm building narrative trust. Nostalgia is a huge driver of narrative takeover. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yes. Let's say it's something about gender. And you come out of a meeting and you said, it's really interesting because the only people who got asked for their opinions in this meeting I was just said were the men in the room, which has probably happened to both of us. And so narrative trust is me saying, say more, what happened? And then you're telling me, and I'm like, so you've got all this expertise in this area and you were completely overlooked in the meeting. Is that what I'm hearing you say? And then you're saying, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. And so narrative takeover would be, well, do you think maybe you were being sensitive? Do you think it's a good idea to keep a tally on who, who's being asked? That's, first of all, totally knocking you out of your own story. And me prioritizing my comfort over your experience. Does that make sense? Oh, yes, it absolutely does. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could see her right now. If she had a thought bubble, it would be PG-13. It would be a, would be oh, a yes. worse version of, oh, hell yeah. You know, I can decline and conjugate things in the same sentence. I just try not to do it on the air. So far, I've succeeded. You have mentioned in the past, though, that a lot of your research has surprised you and, frankly, kicked you in the ass. What surprised you while you were working on Atlas of the Heart? Oh, my God. Let me go back to the table of contents Mm -hmm. and look at all these maps in here. Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. There wasn't a single map or a single places we go in that didn't have something that really... Okay. I mean, I could go down each of them. I'll I'll tell you a small one, then I'll tell you a big one. Okay. So... Places we go when it's beyond us, awe, wonder, confusion, curiosity, interest, and surprise. So what did I learn about surprise? Well, it's an interesting swirl of cognitive, like our thoughts are working and our emotions are working, but it's a very short emotion. It's probably the most short, most short-lived emotion because after we experience it, then we go into whatever follows it, elation, happiness, joy, fear. It just depends. But for anything that is preceded, like anything that surprise kicks off, we feel emotionally more intense around. So I hate surprise parties. I don't like surprises. What's interesting is I'm basically obsessed with British mystery and I read them and I watch them. And right now I'm going through like this whole enclaves. So Vera, Shetland, and I'm going through this whole thing. But And the Brits do TV different than us. They do, instead of one episode where, you know, someone is killed and then it's everything solved, it's six 90-minute episodes. It's so good. You know, it's so for me, but, you know, studies people, it's just like, oh, it's like so good. And then, you know, you're on the moors of some like really somber place. It's just perfect for me. But what I'll do is I will read the plot somewhere before I watch. And everyone is so pissed off about that. They're like, that just, you know, that ruins it. I'm like, that ruins it for you. But if I'm in a theater or I'm watching something and I don't know that someone I love and a character I'm really invested in is going to die, I'm not enjoying it because I feel it so intensely after the surprise. So I think I don't like surprise, not because I'm not, I am not good with, I am bad with uncertainty, but it's, I don't like emotional intensity. Okay. So that's one thing. I mean, there's one in everyone. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. bittersweetness. That's places we go when things aren't what they seem. 
amusement, bittersweetness, nostalgia, cognitive dissonance, paradox, irony, and sarcasm. Well, you'll know soon. Susan Kane, who's one of my favorite writers and people, has a book on bittersweet coming out. This is really exciting. And it's so exciting. And she and I trade what a lot of people would call very bittersweet French music. Like we just send each other notes all the time. Have you listened to this? You know, have you listened to this? And it's hard music. Sometimes my son and my husband will come in. They'll be like, oh God, this is like, and I'm like, it's okay, beautiful. But I think what I learned about bittersweetness is that the research shows, interestingly, it's not under the hood, so to speak. It is rapidly changing emotion. It is sad, happy, sad, happy, sad, happy, sad, happy. And I think that it's beautiful, bittersweetnesses. And I used to feel apologetic for being a bittersweet person. But I think this research combined with just hints of Susan's work has changed that I am a kind of a bittersweet person. And the more emotionally literate you are, the more your language is as expansive as your emotions, the deeper you feel bittersweetness. Oh, that's really interesting. I mean, we're all pretty quick to identify anger, love, sadness, you know, Mm -hmm. super basic kind of point at the face kind of moments. Yeah, right. But then a lot of what you're talking about in this book, even things like awe and wonder, which are wonderful things, and we should all have more Mm, of them in our lives. Yes. We don't always have the words to describe them because as a culture, we're not really big on talking about all of the things you have dug into here, starting with emotion and especially things like vulnerability. No one, doesn't matter, man, woman, doesn't matter. No one particularly wants to talk about any of this, especially in the moment we're in now. (laughs) No, yes. I mean, the more vulnerable we are, ironically, the less we want to talk about it. But the the problem is, it goes back to this quote that I use in the book that I came Mm -hmm. across in college, Ludwig Wittgenstein, Mm -hmm. philosopher. The limits of my language mean the limits of my world. So what happens? I quote some early data that we had where we asked over 7,000 people to, to write down all of the emotions they could identify in themselves when they were experiencing them. The mean number was three, happy, sad, and mad. That's the mean number that people could identify in themselves. They could list a lot of other emotions mm-hmm. that they knew were feeling words, but not that they could readily identify when they were feeling them. And I thought, what happens when our vocabulary is not as expansive as our actual experience in life? What happens when I have to shove an experience of disappointment, our bittersweetness, our confusion into one of three big baskets? I'll tell you what happens. It's where you started this interview. Language does not just communicate what we're feeling. It shapes it. So if I said, hey, Miwa, could you make some chocolate chip cookies for everybody at work tomorrow? And you went home and you pulled out your bowl and you added, you know, brown sugar, whatever's in it, flour, eggs, milk. And the bowl that you picked dramatically changed the way the cookie tasted. That's what language does. So if I say to myself, or I say to myself, God, I'm so, I'm so sad. I'm just so sad. And I call you and I say, I'm so sad. And what I'm really is disappointed. Well, what we know about disappointment is when we feel it, the thing that we need to think about and, and, and feel our way through is what expectation was attached to what we're feeling right now? Because there's a relationship between expectation and disappointment that we really need to understand. So, you know, we just have so much especially in the last year, well, built over lifetimes, granted permission over the last last administration here in the US, rage, 
breach. It's like I saw that flag the other day, literally driving down an old dirt road in Texas that said, fuck your feelings. And I thought it's a Trump flag. I started laughing. I was in the car by myself. I I laughed for like 20 minutes. Like I I almost had to pull over because I thought that's the most emotional flag I've ever seen in my life. Like that flag just radiates emotion, rage, contempt, fear, the irony that it is a feeling flag. It's a feeling flag. It's like a feeling flag. And so that says, fuck your feelings. I don't know. The whole thing is so funny if it weren't so tragic. And so I think what we don't understand is that language doesn't just shape what we're feeling. We know from fMRIs, we know from PET scans, we know that excited and anxious have a lot of the same physical indicators. We know that if we label it excited, the outcome is different than if we label it anxiety. Mm -hmm. And so think about that though, on a cultural macro level, you know, what is it about the desperation for belonging that, that we think that we're getting met in these ideological bunkers? You know, what is it about lovelessness? To use a term by Bell Hooks, she describes all this kind of systems of oppression as just lovelessness. You know, like if you see people suffering and you think you're a loving person, what are you having to say to yourself to make the suffering okay? And so for me, the implications of the book are about relationships and about the relationship with ourselves, with our friends, the people we care about, but also there are macro implications. What do you want readers to know about Atlas of the Heart? That if we're going to find our way back to ourselves and to each other, we're going to need an open heart. We're going to need language that gives us access to new choices, second chances, and that everyone has the ability to become a map maker in their own lives. And the more that we can make those maps and understand where we've been, where we're going, where we are, the bolder we'll be with our love, the more adventurous we'll be in the journeys we make, I think. Seems like the perfect place to end, but I have another question I really, really want to ask you. (laughs) Do it. Do it. P.S. P.S. I had so much fun researching for this show because you've hosted Ashley C. Ford, who's the author of Somebody's Daughter, which is a book everyone needs to read. Your pals with Elizabeth Gilbert, whose big magic, I think, has become a touchstone for a lot of folks. You've co-edited a book with Tarana Burke, and I know you must have given many, 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 many copies of Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat to friends over the years. <laughs> you are, I have you are two. reading me. You are reading my book. Right? I think the Salmon Nostrat is amazing, but also that book is really, really amazing. And I have done the God, same. And I know plenty of people, I'm breaking this now, but plenty of people are getting Hanif Abdurik's book from me <laughs> this oh. Christmas. It is so good. It is so good. Little Devil in America. And you've also hosted Priya Parker a couple of times, The Art of Gathering, which is something we're yeah. all trying to figure out how to do again. What else besides Anne Cleves and the British mystery writers have you been reading and recommending and who else is on your radar and Whose books might you be giving as gifts this holiday season? Well, everybody you mentioned for sure. Hmm. When I read a book that I fall in love with, like Hanif Abdul-Rakib's book, like I give a lot of them. Karen Walrin's book, like Maker's Manifesto. We just got a copy for everyone that works here. You know, my Barnes and Noble is on Holcomb in Houston. And I've had a really long relationship with that Barnes and Noble. Because, you know, my first book, no one would publish it because it was on shame. They were like, oh, one person said, we'll do it if you change it to women's most embarrassing moments. I was like, no, shut up. Mm. Um, sit, sit down. 
But I went to that Barnes and Noble and talked to the manager and I self-published it. I borrowed money, stored it in a friend's house. And he let me do a book signing there. I was related to everybody that came, but that was just part of my vision and my dream for it. I go in all the time. I actually hide there sometimes. (laughs) I don't tell anybody. I really like giving bookstore gift cards because I don't Mm -hmm. know what people are Mm -hmm. reading. It's probably the biggest gift that I give so that people will go in to a bookstore, browse around, look, grab a coffee, sit in a comfy chair. I raised my kids at that Barnes and Noble too. Mm-hmm. Like into the, mm-hmm. they had a little reading time area in the kids section. I'm ready for us to come back from this. And it's always good it, to connect with a book. Yes. <laughs> it's always, I mean, it always good to connect with a book. Do you, do you want me to tell you my COVID obsession? Yes, please. I started in June mm-hmm. of 2020, and I'm on book 14. We're serious. Do you any guesses? Um, Mystery. Okay, it's 14. Uh, it's either Louise Penny. Yeah! Okay. She's amazing. She's really, really great. You have a lot to look forward to because I think 14, they haven't gone to Paris yet, right? Shut up. No. Okay, good. No, no. It's a whole nother book. Okay. okay I'm dying she's to the bomb. Paris because Daniel's she's living the there. Yeah. Okay. You're, yeah, no, you're going to have a good time. Isn't she amazing? I'm always like, as a leader, even I'm like, WWAGD, what would Ramon Gamash do? It's really funny because my husband was like, do you want to get away for a weekend? I was like, yes, I want to go to Quebec. And he's like, where are we going to go? And I'm like, I want to go to this little village that's kind of south of Montreal. And he goes, okay, that sounds fun. Do you know how to get there? And I'm like, mm, <laughs> I'm not sure it exists. <laughs> and he's like, wait, that's so sad. We're going to go try to find an imaginary village. And I was like, yes. Yeah. I'm obsessed. I don't think you'd be alone with that. Actually, I, I have a couple of colleagues who would happily road trip along. Brene Brown, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. The new book is Atlas of the Heart, Mapping Meaningful Connection in the Language of Human Experience. It's out now. Thank you so much. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.